Welcome to the very first episode of Value in Open, a podcast by Miley Search about how to build open source companies. My name is Alan, and I will be your host. Today, I'm speaking with James Hawkins, CEO of PostHawk. Together with his co-founder and CTO, Tim Glazer, James has started an open source analytics company that helps other product developers better understand their users. In the spirit of open source, we are putting out these episodes long before everything is nicely polished and figured out. Any comments you may have on production quality, questions asked, or the content in general will be greatly appreciated. You'll find our contact information in the show notes. How does an open source company come into being? Let's find out together. Record button, then. Okay. Um, James of uh, PostHog. Thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, you, together with your uh, co-founder, Tim, quite recently uh, wrote a extensive blog post about getting uh, $3 million in funding for your open source startup. Can you just uh, very briefly lay out uh, what you announced there and, and what has been happening recently with your company? Sure. Yeah, so we're quite new. Um, we... So we're PostDog, we provide open source product analytics. Um, we started off, um, Tim and I started working together back in August last year um, and went through a couple of pivots. We went into, we did the Y Combinator batch kind of January, February, March this year. Um, we started over from scratch in January, launched in Feb um, and kind of started doing the seed round, I think in April, May. So we just announced that we've raised about $3 million. Um, so it was kind of quick as a turnaround to go from like nothing to that. And that's just a really exciting time because we're able to kind of uh, increase our engineering team, basically. Uh, so that's like a really quick overview. I'm happy to like double click. Oh, yeah. That. <laughs> so let's go all the way back then to see what sort of journey led up to this. Um, you had this fun little note on your website that in the, the early days, you even had a, a career or at least an attempt at a, at a career as a pro cyclist. Yeah, I spent, uh, it's a very hard way to make money. Um, so I spent 10 years, um, sort of like from about the age of 15 to 25-ish, uh, doing it all the way through college, afterwards for a bit, um, kind of racing around. I'm, I live in the UK, but we used to go to Belgium every summer for a few months. And there'd be like five of us living in a farmhouse with often no running water and just really bad living conditions. Um trying to win and the only way to survive was to try and win money in races the good news is in belgium it's so popular you can come kind of in the top 50 it's usually enough to make some money um so yeah it wasn't the case of winning so much as just trying to get by um but yeah i did that for a really long time uh then i had a few uh very big crashes and thought i should probably get a proper job um, but yeah it was a cool it was like a slightly weird start i think to um a career that ended up in open source i guess <laughs> So that eventually turned into a career more in, in tech and internet businesses. You bootstrapped yourself, this marketing company that um, you first worked with. Yeah, so I used to do uh, sort of web development stuff in the evenings to get a bit more cash because um, it's a nice thing to do when you're sitting down after a long day on a bike. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I kind of, uh, I wound up bootstrapping a company. It was owned by someone else. Um, but for me, it was kind of fun because I just had, I could just kind of do whatever I felt like. Um, we did lead generation. So um, we find 
homeowners who wanted to buy stuff online, often like big home improvements or solar panels. We did like a lot of renewable energy products. Um, we'd have like visitors would come through our websites. They'd book an appointment with us. We'd explain how it all worked and how financing and stuff worked. Um, and then we'd, uh, if they wanted to go ahead, we'd connect them with an installer that covered their local area. We'd transfer them on the phone to an installer who would then book an appointment and go out and do the meeting, maybe sell them a product. And we would kind of charge per appointment. But yeah, it grew pretty quickly. It was all about kind of, um, it's where we started in analytics. Um, because the uh, really key thing there was uh, we just had to be very efficient with how we, like conversion rates are really, really important. We had a lot of algorithmic stuff for how we phoned people. Um, so if someone makes an inquiry on your website, there's like a real, uh, there's a lot of science behind how to ultimately call them. So we got really into that. We had like an open source dialer that we heavily modified right. to try and um, work out who the best person to call is um, <laughs> with the next phone call that goes out. So uh, yeah, we used like, that was, I guess, the first time I used heavily open source stuff. Um, but yeah, it was kind of um, more like the analytics has always been kind of of interest because um, I'm a little bit commercial mm-hmm. as well. It's quite technical. So I've just sort of, it was quite a fun place to work, um, but it wasn't really something we thought could get really big at some point. So we eventually decided to move on. Yeah. What was your impression of, of these open source projects that you were using at the time? Like, were you curious about how they came to be and how they were maintained? Um, I think I wasn't. Um, I think I didn't appreciate open source enough back then. So for us, it was much more something that we ended up forking and just putting all these like weird modifications into ourselves for just our own self-hosted thing. And then we used a couple of like, we used like CodeIgniter, which was like an old PHP framework um, to build all of our like data handling and stuff in. But again, I wasn't um, in, th- in the habit of um, doing pull requests and contributing back and trying to up my game. With hindsight, that's absolutely what I should have been doing because it would have helped me become a better developer to kind of generalize the use cases that we're building and the code quality probably would have been a lot higher. So I think I'd have learned much more if I had kind of realized that early on, but I just didn't at the time. But it was my first like proper programming that I ever did. So I was maybe a little bit naive. So just lastly about this first venture of yours, the, the bootstrapping part of it, what exactly does that entail? Like, were you bootstrapping in the sense of you were supporting yourself on the side with, with different work while building this business? Um, so we started off with no revenue at all. Um, the person who kind of owned it was happy to pay, like, my salary at the time. Um, I think it was kind of new and quite young, so not an expensive person. Um, <laughs> we then, we wound up doing, we got to about $5 million a year run rate. I had about 50 people who are kind of on the team after... Um, about 12 months so it grew quite quickly but it was a real balancing act it put a lot of pressure on um, kind of collect like we had to be really on top of things like invoicing and collecting money from our customers in order to then pay our advertising bills because we were spending a ton of money on um, like AdWords Facebook ads all of that kind of stuff um, yeah. so there's a bit of a like that was actually where most of the stress came from it was much more I think we over focused on that area um, we're dealing with a lot of small businesses who are often late paying. Sometimes they would be struggling financially. They often depended on us to um, help their business generate revenue. Um, so there'd be nasty side effects where, for example, um, one business would be like all of its sales would come from the leads that we're providing it with. But if they got behind on a bill, we can't just cut them off because it could kill their company. Um, mm-hmm. So then they would never pay the bill. And also it's really sad for them. So we'd end up uh, having this strange kind of balancing act of trying to like collect all this money in on time in order to be able to increase our spends in online marketing 
Um, so the financial side of that was like a mate was probably the most stressful side of the whole thing, mm. um, <laughs> which is like a down. I mean, the upside of it was it kind of forced us to find a level of product market. Fit, like it, it kind of forced us to build like a real business very quickly. Yeah. Um, the downside, I think, was um, those sort of fairly short termist problems, like chasing money off people were really distracting for us anyway. Yeah. Um, so it made it hard to really focus on the technology. There was so much more I think right. we could have done there. Um, yeah. there, are, there are significant pros and cons of that. Yeah, when it comes down to your main focus is chasing the money, then <laughs> it's hard to, to build a product <laughs> alongside of that. Uh, so you ended up moving to this uh, other company called Arachnus, where you met your uh, now co-founder, uh, Tim. Can you uh, briefly lay out how that uh, came together? Like how, how did the two of you uh, connect there in this company and started talking about uh, a possible new venture together? Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess like the reason I ended up moving really is uh, Arachnus is was just like a really professional company filled with really bright people. It was just kind of obvious when I met them. Um, so I kind of wanted to go there just to get a bit more experience before doing my own thing again. Um, and I thought the like founder seemed really, really bright. Um, I got on really well with him the whole way through. Um, he ended up becoming one of our kind of angel investors at post afterwards which is really nice um mm. tim i used to i started off i was supposed to run our marketing um because i've been running like a big online marketing kind of business before and doing most of the technical stuff um i wound up running our sales team uh there so i ended up doing like lots of enterprise software setting selling like SaaS. we used to sell compliance software to large banks tim used to run the kind of r&d sort of function so he'd build prototypes of new functionality we'd often we'd work together not kind of totally intensively but often tim would build new functionality that i would take into big exec meetings with uh, someone really important in a bank to show off hey this is what we think the future of this software could look like do you have any feedback do you want to maybe you know spend another million dollars with us in order for us to productize this for you um so the two of us worked um not totally intensively, but we certainly worked together with a few lots of customer meetings, that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah. that's kind of how we got to know each other. Tim, from my perspective, was just incredibly strong at engineering. He was incredibly quick, really knew what he's doing. How did you recognize that? What were you seeing in him that made it clear that he was a very strong engineer? The level of speed uh, was just really obvious. Like it, we could say, hey, we've got this like cool idea from a client. Uh, and the next day, there'll be something that I could walk in and demo to them in real life. So that level of agility was really important um, yeah. repeatedly. Like we won our, our first big enterprise customer. Um, it was a very large tier one bank. And the contract at the time was about $700,000 a year or something. Uh, we won that because they uh, had gone with another vendor. We persisted. We kept trying to um, say, hey, we think like we're a better solution. The other vendor failed to deliver, and then the company just turned around um, the exact thing they needed in 48 hours, and the other vendor had <laughs> failed over the course of about a year to deliver this to them. So we did a few little startup things like that, And but Tim was always great at if you really need something done that day, like it will always happen. Um, so that was the thing that really impressed me about his work when we were there together. Hmm. So the two of you started thinking about doing a company together. What, what were the earlier earliest conversations like between the two of you? Was it mainly just 
we want to start something together, anything. Uh, so Tim got another job somewhere else. Uh, and then within about five minutes of hearing that, I was like, man, I need to go speak to Tim. So I want to work with him again. Um, and I've been thinking like, okay, I'm, we'd gotten, we got to the scale where um, I started feeling that as a head of sales, I was a bit like, I just felt there would be people who might be, who would be better than me at my own job once we got beyond <laughs> a certain point. Um, so I was sort of thinking of like, maybe I should go do that startup idea I had, like, or a startup of some sort at this point. I had a couple of ideas for what to work on. Um, Tim quit, which then was like, okay, right, I think I need to like get on with this. So as soon as I knew that he had a job somewhere else, I thought like, hey, I'll buy him a beer. And then we'll go talk about a couple of the random ideas that I've got to work on and see if he's interested or not. Um, so yeah, that was like how we started. Um, I ended up leaving a few weeks later. Um, and then we set off um, building out software, speaking to users, uh, and trying to get traction uh, for quite a long period after that. Yeah, and the the company you you first set out to make is quite different, as I understand it, is what you uh, you've put out to the world now. So what was the first thing, <laughs> the first idea you you pursued, and and how did that turn into a, a pivot later? There are actually two ideas. We didn't really, I haven't really written out one of them. So I was like, oh, this is too much stuff. It's getting confusing, uh-huh. but I'll go, I'll go, let's try it. Uh, so the very first thing we tried was um, I used to run a sales team. Um, and I just felt from like knowing lots of other heads of sales that uh, people don't use much data to drive their management of their own team. So they'll often have a forecast and you kind of list out every single deal that's supposed to be closing. Uh, but the problem is, everyone focuses on the stuff that's supposed to be closing, whereas it's kind of irrelevant. Like if you have enough pipeline overall, not just like the very late stage deals, and you're managing towards that, even if some stuff falls out, like overall, you're going to be fine. So we built a tool that would help sales managers do one-on-ones with their team. um, And it would use predictive analytics um, integrated with Salesforce to sort of highlight deals that statistically look like they were going to drop out even if they're like really early stage and no progress is being made it would say hey this really early stage deal that you probably don't care about is going is like we think it's going to die if you don't like actually focus a bit more heavily there rather than just spending every one-on-one talking about like that big million dollar contract um over and over again so yeah we built that out um did didn't do a very good job of of speaking to potential users like we spoke to a lot of them uh, but there's a really good book called The Mum Test. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen this. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yes. Um, where the premise is kind of don't talk in hypotheticals with your users. It should kind of be um, uh, like our one-on-ones are prob- like uh, what have you done to try and improve your one-on-ones in the last year? If they haven't actually done anything to try and solve their pro- that problem, they're probably unlikely to want to spend money on software to solve it. Um, so yeah, we did. We kind of didn't do that very well. We were much more like, "Hey, would you pay for like a tool that would help you um, judge which deals to talk about, so you kind of get more out of your management time with people?" Uh, we built it very quickly. We launched it. We sent it out to like fifteen friendly heads of sales or VPs of sales that, that I'd kind of met through networking. Uh, and I think the end result was like one of them clicked the link and then promptly used it for a single week and then stopped. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, it was kind of obvious that we had a problem at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, at this point, you had not yet applied to Y Combinator or anything like that. It was just this first trial run of, uh, let's see if we can build a product and, and a company didn't 
quite work out on, on the first go around. And so now you move on to, to a different idea. Are you already at this point thinking about, we also want to try get funding for this? Or are you pursuing the same sort of launch plan of we're just going to build something, put it out there for people and yeah, see we, how it works? Yeah, we started off thinking we're going to bootstrap. Um, we kind of just <laughs> defaulted into it. So we kind of thought, well, if we start off on this basis, we've saved, um, you know, like a round a year's worth of money or whatever from having been working for a long time. Um, so we thought, well, we can give this 12 months um, and then see kind of where we get to. If we can't solve it, we'll just have to get a job um, again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we started off bootstrapping. Uh, that was probably helpful when we were doing SaaS, I think, um, because it encouraged us. To, we had to talk about money with people so people would pay for stuff really soon. Um, eventually, we got we tried another idea around solving technical debt. Um, the like, two-second summary is we built like a little survey that would integrate with your git repo um we'd seen some challenges with this when our engineering team got bigger um at arachnis and we heard a lot about it from our other engineering kind of friends um that we started signing up lots of engineers to and we got a couple of hundred users but we struggled to we just felt that we weren't really solving the problem properly was kind of the feedback we're often getting um it was around this time that we applied to y combinator the reason why we decided to switch change gears is we we sort of felt that when we're when we're 18, we look back at what we try to do in our careers. Uh, I, we kind of took the view that, well, we'd really like to try and like, it's not so much about like owning 100% of something. We want to try and do something really big and make a big change. And we felt that VC mm-hmm. will let us do that more quickly. I think with bootstrapping, we probably could, I think we'd have pulled off potentially like being able to cover, you know, pay ourselves a salary and building something up um, arguably more sustainably. Uh, but it felt like we may well spend five years getting back to the same kind of level of income that we already had because we've had quite good jobs yeah. before. Um, so it started feeling, and it will be a lot more stressful along the way. Um, and along the way, we're going to earn a lot less money. So it's going to be quite painful and stressful and slower. Um, and we're, uh, I think we might have struggled with our, I just started thinking like, well, I, I could see in like two years time, we might start struggling for motivation or to keep the pace up because we both like doing stuff quickly. Um, so yeah that's kind of like the chat we had and then we just sort of we just felt on the vc side like we can very quickly go for this um we think it's like good timing there's so much um financing available or certainly like pre-covid at least um so we thought like why not we want to like let's take a much bigger kind of like moonshot and just see if we can land it or not um because the outcome is going to be the same either way like we'll end up having to get proper jobs afterwards if we fail in either of these cases um so that was kind of like the conversation we had early on where we thought we're considering switching to vc kind of route yeah and in your 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 application to y combinator like what is the the gist of that because you've described it on your on your blog as maybe not even the strongest uh in in terms of you as as an applicant uh, at least like the application must have been pretty strong since it it worked out but you didn't uh, feel too strongly about your chances going in it sounded like so what did that application sound like and and what do you think uh worked well about it yeah i think uh there's kind of like this I, there was this sort of aura around yc for, uh, for tim and me because we're just both avid kind of we read loads of engineering blogs and hacking news and all of that kind of stuff and it always felt like some mysteriously impossible thing to get into 
Um, neither of us had ever sold a company for $100 million before or raised any money, really. Neither of us have been founders. Um, so we were like, well, maybe we like need to like network and try and hustle our way in um, or something like that. And we just won't get in if we don't do that stuff. But in reality, we basically just followed their instructions, submitted the form, and off we went, and it was all fine. So I think if you're listening and you think you're quite combinator, you can just follow the application process. Um, I think the application itself, um, we it was like the day before it was due in, um, we wrote out this like really long application, spending way too many words describing what we did um, and trying to be overly sophisticated and clever. Um, it was about 10 o'clock the night before. Um, and we sat there and just went, this application is not very good. Uh, so we deleted it, started from scratch and kind of wrote the whole thing in about 25 minutes. Um, and just kind of, yeah, the gist was basically we've, we've achieved like a bunch, we've got tons of users really quickly. Um, uh, this is kind of who, like, this is how we think we can solve this problem. This is why it's a big problem. It's a problem we've seen before, um, but we just kept it incredibly simple. And I think it probably just appealed if they're having to process thousands of applications that it was quite easy to understand. So yeah, just like, if it's no good, delete your application, start over and make it simpler. Um, I've also been shared a few, like some founders have sent them to me um, who've been applying since, uh, like a handful of them have like sent them through LinkedIn or whatever. And they've always, I don't know, some of them you're just like, this is the words are really long that you're using. There are loads of words in this. Like you can just make it really simple. Explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old um, almost. And you're probably, that's kind of like the main thing I think we probably did well. Um, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> So you get into Y Combinator, you get you move to San Francisco as well, don't you? Both of you, yeah. And you kind of get, get into the, the the YC sprint of sorts that uh, they do, um, but not that far into this journey. It sounds like you you realize that this isn't the the product that you should be building. Yeah. So I think when as soon as we went to YC. Uh we've been pretty disciplined about trying to make significant progress every week no, because we'd kind of, you know, it doesn't matter what size you are. It matters the direction you're going in and the rate of progress. So we'd really been quite big on trying to make progress each week. When we got into YC, it just felt like there was more pressure. We also have more ability to focus because we, um, like at the start of the program, I think Michael Siebel says, Hey, this gives you a socially acceptable excuse to look after yourselves, exercise and work and not very much else. Uh, which is exactly kind of what happened. Uh, so we just started working the hard, I mean, it was the most productive period of our lives uh, is for both of us, I think. We just very quickly started realizing that we're not solving this problem very well. We got, we met tons of heads of engineering in person, uh, took them out of coffees, talked about what we're doing. We spoke to existing users, but we just kind of realized that we weren't solving the problem very well. Um, and Tim and I also kind of felt that we're both, like Tim is much more technical than me, um, but we just kind of felt that we're not really the right founders for the problem that we're trying to solve. We realized, we felt that we'd have to build something that would go much deeper into technical debt, start you know being more like a linter um, or building like a technical debt roadmap or doing something that's a lot, a much bigger kind of solution. Mm. And we just sort of realized that we didn't like the, uh, the problem that we were trying to solve. Um, we're both quite... Uh, we're both like a bit more commercial. We both quite like kind of growth marketing analytics combined with technical stuff. Um, and along the way, we got frustrated with our experiences with product analytics. Um, and we've been writing down like every idea we had. And we kept wanting to change what we were working on. 
Um, and when we struggled to kind of monetize properly, the partners were like, hey, it feels like you should switch. Uh, so we just did. And we just kind of went <laughs> full little gas uh, in a different direction. <laughs> yeah. And with that change of direction, it sounded like that almost coincided with you going the open source route. So what precipitated this? You, I, I understand you had certain talks with people who had made other successful open source companies. So I'm very curious what those conversations were like and, and what in particular that you picked up on there that made you go, okay, we're, we're going to make this a, an open source product and, and make a, a business out of that. Yeah, so um, I think like part of the reason we founded Postdoc is that we kind of just didn't want to send all our user data to third parties. Um, and we felt it was like a little bit invasive. Like it's kind of whatever they're doing in your software. That kind of feels like it shouldn't have to go outside. Um, mm -hmm. So we had that kind of doubt. And then there's a couple of like pet project, like pet features that we wanted to build into analytics as engineers. Um, so we're kind of thinking like, well, how would we like target kind of product analytics at an engineer to make it useful for them? Not, not really thinking so much about product managers who typically have used those tools. Um, and we thought, well, okay, so how would we let you self-host it? We'd have to give you access to the source code so that you can install it and stuff. So we may as well make it open source. Um, we then got really stressed about licensing and started kind of reading through uh, like Sentry's licensing, GitLab's, Elastic's, Mongo's, uh, and started getting weirdly paranoid about, well, ugh, so surely someone's like going to copy our idea and just like make a bunch of money off it and then we'll get left out or something. So we spoke to the partners at YC and they kind of said, we don't know, uh, go and speak to a bunch of open source <laughs> founders. Uh, and we just asked their advice and they were pretty much universally really friendly. Uh, and within about, it took us about a week, I think, just to learn what we were doing. Um, but yeah, we just met some, like Ian Tien from, he's the founder of Mattermost, which is open source Slack, it was incredibly helpful. He spent like an hour on the phone with us. And then he gave a talk by chance that we went to um, one day. So we went to that as well. Um, GitLab, we found really helpful. Um, we had like a couple of emails with Sid, who's the founder, but also because they've documented everything transparently, it's a really easy way to understand um, a bit about how they work. And we liked a huge amount of what they were doing. Um, the And then we looked through a few of the other repos too, like Sentry. Also, like I met David Kramer um, to, you know, we met him when we were actually thinking of pivoting. I was like, We've got this idea around technical debt. Like, what do you think? And you could just tell he didn't care. Um, so I was like, look, we have this other idea. Um, do you have like a big, complicated, self-hosted product analytics you kind of stack yourself? Um, and we just started talking about it. And so, yeah, those like, there were kind of three or four founders like that who just kind of told us what to do. The premise is basically don't worry too much about licensing. Just launch it and see if anyone cares. Um, <laughs> just make sure you like document stuff properly. Don't try and make money out of like an individual engineer for something open source just kind of give freely to people um and you'll just get inbound interest from bigger companies so we did exactly that <laughs> so the advice was essentially don't really worry too much about licensing just put it out there in the open get users and you can worry about protecting yourselves later yeah, basically, because like you can quite quickly change. Like if you've got a community of thousands, you're not gonna. It's gonna be contentious to change your licensing. But if you're just getting started, I mean, we kind of we looked up the main kind of existing models for this. You know, like OpenCore hosted, like charged for hosted versus self-hosted, or kind of services based. We ruled out services because we just felt um, 
we just felt it's not as leveraged. Like you're always going to have to focus on margins and it's going to be human intensive. Um, we offer it like we do have like a services offering, but basically it's so we can learn new functionality that can automate a lot of that work. Um, so the long run, we looked to like open core bases versus hosted self-hosted. And we just decided that a lot of our benefit is allowing you not to send your user data to third parties if you're like a really big company or if you're more privacy focused. So for that reason, we just felt cool, self um, open core kind of makes sense for us. So we'll just start with that and we'll build just an MIT licensed totally free version for now that's all we're going to try and launch we're not going to try and build like the paid version of the product with better functionality for very big customers um and just you know and like you've got to be successful for someone to bother copying you and you're not successful when you're starting so you know we just kind of and like for the same reason you probably prefer to drink coca-cola rather than the one from like your local supermarket um we just felt that you don't win by following. So yeah, we just launched and stopped worrying about it. And then that just gave us enough feedback that we're then able to learn what to build next. Yeah. So is it fair to say that being open and and especially self-hostable uh, as a part of that is is almost like PostHog's uh, main differentiator compared to the, the competition? It sounds like that was your main priority, that these other ones, they're always, they're just sending your data someplace to some server you don't have control over, whereas PostHog, uh, you'll have more control over that. And and open source is, is just essentially a, a very standardized, well-understood way of giving users more control over their software. Yeah, we had like two hypotheses for this to start up very early, where we're like, that, exactly that like you want control over your we imagine that big companies will want control over user data and we know there are lots of developers who want this even in smaller companies where they just don't yeah. you know a startup may not care that much but an individual developer lots of them really do care about this because it's kind of considered yeah. um wrong to share data quite often so we kind of thought like this will probably this will get us like enough people will care about this that we think we can then grow from there the other thing we kind of believed in was um when people have, uh, for it's specific to product analytics, but basically if you're tracking all the event data that's happening in someone's website or application, and if you're providing it as a hosted service, you're going to build up all this data, which will cost you a bunch of money to host. Um, so you kind of have to charge some some proxy on your usage, on their usage level. So it's either like the volume of users, the volume of events or whatever. The problem is like some users are really valuable and others aren't. So if you're in b2b and you're selling um like accountancy software that you use for your payroll you're, you know you might charge like fifty thousand dollars a year for that and only have a couple yeah. of users but then if you're b2c um you know and you're pinterest or something you'll have very low marginal value per user but a massive volume so we kind of we sort of believe that um when you get beyond a certain scale of usage that um, a pricing model based on the number of users is going to get really unappealing at some point because you're having to try and make money and you're kind of guessing how much it's going to cost to host um, as well. So we just felt that we could be more on the side of our customers if they're very big um, one day. And we kind of, we spoke to a few, the people who start our repo, if they worked at like cool sounding companies, I often just tried to buy them a coffee just to understand like, hey, how do you think about this at the moment? Um, and we kind of learned that like really big companies and very frequently self-build their stack for this stuff. So we thought, hey, this would be a cool, like PostDoc is like an alternative to doing a lot of that eventually when we make it more scalable and stuff one day. Yeah, I've, I've written a bit about this myself as well, that 
being self-hosted, it just also builds in this kind of transparency into your business and the way you do pricing because you're essentially competing a bit with yourself as well by having your product so easily usable and, and so easily inspectable uh, by others and, and how easy it is to uh, set it up for yourself. If you're willing to put in the resources, then that just makes the yeah the, the basic equation for, for costs and what you're getting by paying for the service so straightforward for companies who are, are coming uh, to a provider of, of an open source product that they know what is reasonable to to be charged for because they can make their own estimation of okay what would it actually cost us if we just set this up ourselves and and did not engage with these people at all so it just I think it creates for a, a very simple and honest relationship with your customers as well when you're self-hosted. Yeah, I think it does make, I think um, that is, I think maybe the challenge, I think that with open source, it kind of makes it easier to get a level of, it makes it, I think it certainly made, has made it easier to get like a lot of users quite quickly. I think it will make um, convert it, like working out how to generate revenue, um, signif- like more challenging maybe, um, because mm-hmm. it kind of will end up coming a bit later. So uh, it is kind of on the downsides that you need to work this stuff out. But if you're, we kind of felt that if you're like we, like one of the big things that we're doing is we're focused on engineering adoption rather than product managers. And um, we kind of believe that engineers should be able to understand themselves um, who's using their stuff. Um, so if you're going after engineers, like being super salesy and having like non-technical people dealing with them, we just felt was a recipe for frustrating people. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, being, we're just trying to be really straightforward with this stuff um, and giving people the choice. We're not that interested in trying to like totally. We just felt they're not a group that are easily swayed. <laughs> um, apart from through like features, <laughs> yes. functionality, benefits, it's quite clean cut, uh, which is a cooler way to do business because you just spend less time, um, you know, playing off against each other over pricing and stuff. So, can you speak a bit more to that about? Um... At this point, you, you're on your way to, to this uh, larger funding round. And during this time, uh, as I think you still are, you were very engineering focused and, and focused on building a community. So what did that look like in, in practice, this building of the community around Postdoc? Yeah, uh, what we tried to do basically is um, when we were back in Arachnus, when we sold like our first like really big enterprise deal, we... The company just did a really good job of looking after them, which sounds kind of obvious. But basically, every time they asked for something, we either gave a reason why we weren't going to do it or we built it really quickly for them. And so we've tried to give that level of service to our open source people. So if someone's you know good enough to write an issue, give feedback, raise a bug, um, we'll just solve it for them really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And we've just repeatedly done that because it shows people that we care about the feedback that we're getting. So it encouraged people to give you more feedback or to ask for more features. Um, I think it's a challenge to keep the products reasonably well defined so that you don't kind of get pulled in a weird direction or, you know, engineering it for like one particular user. Um, so we, we do our best to ask for context around like, what are you trying to solve with this feature? Mm-hmm. Um, but probably I would say most of it is we'll get like random bugs being raised. Um, and those are obvious, like it shouldn't have bugs. We should just fix it. So, um, we've just tried really hard to be very responsive to the, Every, all the early people who've kind of believed in it from the first few weeks. So I think that has probably helped give us a good reputation at least. Um, and that's how we're trying to invest now, um, is just keep focusing on our engineering strength 
um, and not hiring like a lot of customer success people that just escalate all these cases and don't really solve the actual problem. So we're trying to connect engineers with engineers as much as we can, which is capital intensive. Like we need to invest in this to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, in your funding blog post, you also mentioned during this period of, of March and April, your, your bank balance was already going up. Was that like seed funding coming in or early customers or yeah, I was, was trying, that I was just trying to give a sense of like um, how, because as you do a fundraising round, you're probably going to get money from a bunch of different places. Um, like you'll start off with some smaller checks and move to bigger ones. I just wanted to like explain how um, this probably looks in practice. Uh, basically, it turns out that you'll hopefully have a few angels, investors who can give you like smaller checks and a lot of advice and helpful introductions. Um and they'll steer, you know, and they're still like incredibly useful to, to people to us. Like we'll ask random questions all the time. Uh, that also gives you like a little bit of momentum early on. Um, but it's towards the end that we found the process just really sped up. Like suddenly you get one offer, then you get like another three or four. Um, if you've managed to speak to everyone at more or less the same time. So it was just to try and give a sense of like, hey, we're getting in like steadily. We're getting like small checks coming in. Um, but towards the end, it just ramped almost immediately. And then we had to. It was a really, it's really odd when it, if you get in that, if you're lucky to get into that position, it's very strange going from kind of selling all the time to then having to be really picky over um, how you can compile the rest of the round so you don't sell too much of the company too early. Yeah. And so all of these investors, a couple of years back, it would uh, probably sound strange to people that there was any investment at all in, in open source companies. But did you find that the ones you talked to, they just understood it when you essentially said to them, like, we're just making this open source product. We're going to get a bunch of people using it and we'll figure out the, the money part later. Uh, is that essentially what you told them? And, and did that work? Yeah, it shifted. So first, um, I think we were less confident. We're going through that, like, <laughs> if you raise money, I think you get like, especially if you, um, yeah, like if you go through that kind of fundraising process, it's almost like getting a load of consultancy over your strategy because you'll get pushed back from mm-hmm. people, and you get like a lot yeah. of standpoints, and some people will directly contradict each other or whatever. Um, yeah, we started off thinking, okay, our, our plan is like we'll build a paid version sooner rather than later, um, so we can try and get in more control of our spending and stuff and it just makes it it feels sensible to do um but then we like in the process of doing all these pitches i was like hmm, this doesn't feel like it's landing that much with people and then we started talking about it ourselves um and then we started looking at like other companies that got really big that did open source and we kind of just felt that if we want to actually really build something big here um it seems irrational to start focusing everything we have on the like if we if I like I've done sales before, I'm like kind of happy cold calling a bunch of people to try and um, sell a contract or two. But I just know if we do that now, we'll have to build the pay version of the product, which means our whole engineering focus will switch, and we won't be able to kind of like yeah. look after the community as well because it's inevitable that we'll have to build a pay product, which will pull our focus onto it, and then we'll kind of we'll build something that's like kind of sensible, but it's not the kind of big swing at something much larger that a venture capitalist is going to want. And that's also kind of what we wanted to try and do with what we're here for. Um, so for us, we just felt like the other route would have worked, really could equally have worked, but it, it just wasn't landing, I think, with a lot of the investors. Um, and then it made us realize that maybe that's actually not the right thing to do. We'll keep it even simpler, like just make the free version awesome. 
yeah. <laughs> then work it out from there. Um, yeah, that really became the pitch after a while. And that's also what we now really heavily believe in. So you got your, your big funding round. Uh, we're pretty much up to present day now. So uh, what are the, the basic stats of, of the company at the moment? Like how many people are working there and when, what's your adoption like? Sure. So um, we've had like, uh, so we're kind of getting about probably around 20 new companies install it daily now, um, organically, which is great. Like it's, um, some of it's come from a couple of blog posts that we've done that got popular on the web, just writing up about what we're learning. Um, mm -hmm. Most of it is coming from word of mouth, which is pretty cool. Um, mm -hmm. So we're seeing like a lot of organic growth. I think the things we're needing to work out now are, we're trying to get a, like, it's kind of ironic when you do product analytics uh, that you're like, oh, we need to have tracking over like how we're growing properly. Yeah. But often we won't have the features that we need to do our own tracking. So we'll have to build them first. Yeah. So we've been building out, we've been trying to build out all the things that we actually needed to track our own company's growth. Um, so we're trying to think about, um, we're trying to kind of do two things really. We have product work, like just features that we believe are going to be helpful that we've learned about from user interviews. So uh, we're trying to turn into more of like a product experimentation platform. Uh, that means we've just released feature flagging. So we believe that by integrating feature flags with product analytics, you can give developers more control. Um, hey, like here's some crazy new feature you've come up with. Um, because it's crazy, you should probably deploy it to 1% of your user base and then look at the impact it actually has on your metrics. That's how we can give you as an engineer more autonomy, which is why the product will become more appealing, I think, to you. And we've learned that yeah. a lot of the like very big tech companies have built this in-house. So we thought, hey, we could like productize this. So we're trying to build more functionality like that. Um, so we have people focusing on that, um, like just a small team. Like we're still uh, six people at the moment. The other side is... Um, thinking about growth engineering. So kind of saying like, okay, we've got some stuff that's come from user interviews that we're working on. The other like slice of stuff we're thinking about is, is there functionality that will help us to grow faster? The dream is basically if an engineer installs it, more than one other engineer um, joins as a direct result, because then we'll end up with an exponential growth rate. That means like, okay, one engineer installs it. How do you get like the rest of the team to use this tool? So um, some of the product functionality we're working on, we think will help. Like if you're using it for feature flagging, other engineers will probably like need access to it, um, which could be cool. Um, but also things like um, letting people collaborate over their stats. So tagging and annotating graphs. So we're going to have a couple of people who are more focused on um, functionality for that purpose um, at the same time. Um, but that's pretty much it. What we're not trying to do is um we're not hiring like a bunch we're not hiring any salespeople. um we're not planning on spending really any money on like we're not going to spend a ton of money on marketing we're really really trying to keep it driven from the product itself and um, because we're getting organic yeah. traction so if we can just like lean into that if we do spend money later on other things like it'll just, it'll just be way more effective so i think by trying to like be very product-led it allows you to be kind of more focused and you can build a product to a very high standard um, because you're not getting distracted by doing sales and stuff but that will create revenue pressure at some point, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, where are you interacting with uh, your users? Like naturally, there's there's GitHub. So what are the other channels that you're talking to your users on? Yeah, that's a really good question. This is something that um, I'm not sure if we're getting it right or not at the moment. So basically, GitHub is obvious. Like we get um, issues there. We try uh, we're remote first, a whole a company. So we try and do all of our feature discussion happens in the open, and we'll often get bits of feedback from developers who'll see stuff and it gives us a sense of what's going to be popular and what's not and therefore what we should put more effort into 
Um, we created a community Slack group, um, which has been fantastic for getting kind of like more intimate discussions with people. So if someone's trying to debug something and they want to share some screenshots, um, they'll, you know, we might end up in a, uh, like we'll create a channel for their company and get a couple of their engineers into it. Uh, so that's really helpful that way. But the flip side is it feels um, a bit, uh, ideally, we'd actually have that, I think, as more of a forum um, so that it's indexable, yeah. easier to search. The, the reason we haven't done that so far is I often feel personally like posting a forum creates quite a high, uh, it would make me nervous if I'm a well, yeah. newer developer. It's like, oh, this is going to be on the internet forever versus like some random <laughs> Slack message. So we felt there was yeah. a trade-off between the two of them. Um, I would love something that would convert our Slack into a forum automatically and would like sync them or something um, for that reason, because yeah. uh, that would probably really help. So people could like see other bugs people have had. So that's something that is kind of annoying me that I don't think we've nailed yet, but um, Slack's been very helpful so far. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are waiting for the perfect chat forum hybrid that can easily give you that early a uh, user group of people just ephemerally talking together and, and being very low stakes and have that gradually transition into a full-fledged forum where you can talk more async and, and also have uh, content stored uh, yeah, in, in the public and, and in perpetuity. Yeah, just, I, kind of, uh, I kind of want that, the, like, the general room to basically be a forum and then for them, people to have yeah. the ability to message us one-on-one if they feel uncomfortable for some reason. Um, yeah. But and then for us to be able to like hop the conversation out into the public one, if it's like, can we? So yeah, the dream. <laughs> one Christmas, <laughs> yeah. maybe if we get bored, we might have a go. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm very curious what your thoughts are on VC funding in in open source. We we talked briefly about this uh, by email, and, and I thought your answer was very interesting. So I'd love to hear your expanded thoughts on how does VC funding interact with an open source product and uh, yeah, where do you see the, the incentives there aligning? Yeah, so I think um, something that maybe not enough people, I mean, I might be wrong, but like my perspective is basically, I think open source is fantastic well positioned to disrupt a lot of SaaS, um, mm. the, which I should make it appealing for VCs. Um, the specific reason I think I believe that is if you believe in product-led growth, like you know, if you look at the way Slack has grown or um, any of these companies like Figma who've just done an exceptional job of the product being incredibly useful and also naturally getting across lots of users from like one user to many. Um, open source is like an even better version of that potentially. Obviously, you need to build features like that that are going to help you grow. Um, but by being open source, you can go into production in massive enterprises without any information security, with no vendor risk management, you know, if they can see an MIT or much less than you would have with having to bring in a new SaaS provider because the data staying on your infrastructure, you can access all of the code so you can inspect it if you've got any security concerns yourself. Um, and it just allows to get adoption to much, much bigger companies really easily, as well as also being more appealing for an individual developer. So it just takes friction out of the adoption process. So yeah, if I were working on... Um, like I think kind of any, it wouldn't apply to any kind of SaaS. Like if you're a CRM, I could see being less successful open source, maybe because it's not something a developer would use. So they're not going to care as much about doing pull requests or raising issues. But if you're building something that's a bit closer to product, um, I think it's really, it's like just much more appealing. Like if I'm an engineer, I see something open source, I'm likely to want to install it. If I see something that's SaaS, I'm like, oh, do I need another account somewhere? Um, I'm going to get a sense of lock-in. 
uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's not free forever anymore. Um, so it's another. So I just think if you're building something like engineers are going to use uh, open source, mm-hmm. and there's a SaaS version, but not an open source version. I think there's a really easy route there to. And I think some investors have started really seeing this, uh, where I think the mentality is almost like, if there's something open source is getting popular, that basically like any if I picked a developer off the street and asked them what open source libraries they're using, like that's probably one I should fund. Um, mm-hmm. So some are absolutely like that. A lot of them still, I think, if we'd gone in and said, "Hey, we're B two B SaaS, we have whatever thousand dollars a month in revenue, easy, like all day." This is kind of how people work. So there are some who feel like they haven't um, got this hypothesis um, at this stage, and it kind of became really clear. We get pushed back, like, "Hey, you're, we were pre revenue when we raised," and it just you know to that to understand me, right? Like, obviously, everything could go wrong. We can't generate any money later. We have to build the paid product. We have to validate it. We have to get people to actually then pay for it. And um, so there is risk in that. Um, but the flip side is you can build something bigger. So it's kind of and we're sat there thinking like, well, there's more than a thousand companies using this. Like, we're not really that early stage, even if it's free. So some people, mm-hmm. I think, the la- a lack of revenue will just um, get rid of your ability to get uh, money from them. But there are definitely some investors out there who are, just want you to build something that gets really heavily adopted um, and becomes incredibly popular, and then they believe that you'll work it out. Um, so yeah, we felt it was quite polarized when we spoke to people how they felt about this mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, the VC pressure, like uh, there is, of course, that that sort of expectation of going big in in some way yeah. and and about having that type of uh, exit how do you feel about that and and uh, how does that sort of come into play with just the, the day-to-day product development that makes sense so i think um i think vc pressure only happens in a i mean i'm sure there are some vcs who maybe are annoying to work with um <laughs> but like our experience like i was they were incredibly friendly uh, we found them a lot friendlier than um, I just. We just didn't come across the stereotypes that we were expecting um, from reading about it online. Like people gave us good feedback on why they would or would not invest. They're helpful. They're nice. They like send nice WhatsApp messages. Um, so I think from a, I think VC pressure maybe happens in a vacuum. Like if you aren't opinionated when you go in, you maybe will end up with their opinion steering your decision making. Um, so like. I think when we were earlier, when we started doing the first few pitches, we weren't as strongly opinionated. Like we hadn't thought through the strategy really enough. We didn't strongly enough mm-hmm. know what we we're doing, but it forced us to have a much stronger picture. So towards the end, it's like none of this money is going on a sales team. It's going on like engineering product and like the quality design of the product. It's, like it's just stuff we're going to follow product led growth. We're not going to charge users uh, like individual developers. We're going to focus on the free product, but you know now it's like aligned perfectly with building a cool community that have something helpful to mm. work on. So it's kind of we just haven't uh, experienced it. We know later on it's inevitable, like maybe Series B or C, where there'd be way more pressure on revenue. So we will have to work that out. Um, but early on, I think if you're really opinionated and you truly believe that's the best way to build something very big, you're on their side. Um, so yeah, I think there's just I think it's quite easy for I think I'd almost argue in SaaS as opposed to open source, the incentives are further away from a user's perspective. Mm-hmm. So with open source, even if we like something goes wrong, like the repo will live forever. So um, yeah. <laughs> it's almost a little bit better for that reason if it's early stage. And I think that's maybe why some people adopt open source libraries when you're earlier. Whereas with SaaS, you're like, oh, if this service disappears in six months or something, we're stuck. So yeah, yeah I just haven't felt that as strongly as you'd expect from maybe reading stuff online. 
Mm-hmm. What is your relationship nowadays uh, to to open source? Like you kind of came into it a little bit uh, from the outside, like only dabbling with it uh, as as this uh, nice little uh, yeah <laughs> free benefit as as many developers do to suddenly being fully invested in it as an open core company so uh yeah what what's your relationship to open source now do you feel like you're you're part of the movement are you uh <laughs> part of the group now yeah i think um i've like completely fallen head over heels in love i think we're just like i i've been missing out on like where has it been all my life uh, we've been um uh yeah there's just so much cool stuff with it like i would never i'd be kind of absolutely loath to ever run a non-open source company ever again um we've just got like people are really nice they give you good feedback sometimes the feedback can be quite blunt or direct but that's kind of what you need if you're trying to set something up that's not that needs improvement so um yeah i'm just like and you see expertise from like a really diverse group of people um you know whether it's something to do with accessibility like we're trying to host it in a particular way or like we've got an unusual use case um uh and it's just it makes it easier to build something useful for people um and then there's a cool sense that like people can use this totally for free if they can't afford it you know to give you money so it's just a lot it just feels more welcoming um as an approach and the cool thing is that means you get like when we're hiring engineers it's a huge plus like we can get really good people much more easily i think than we would have otherwise been able to because they also want to like give back to engineers and stuff so yeah i think i've been missing out by not trying or thinking about this harder sooner maybe our paranoia that you couldn't not knowing how you could set up a company around it perhaps was the mm-hmm. thing that I the like subconscious bias i had these days what would you say is is the purpose or primary function of open source to you from your perspective good question so uh it just gets uh, for me it's just um it's like just control like you just don't get locked into something um so um it's powerful it gives every engineer like users more control over what they're doing like if you don't like something you can change it um you can do a pull request to build some weird extension if you want to it's totally up to you so i kind of just like the freedom that it gives people um and that's on both sides like it it's very cool when you get engineers working on your repo doing some pull requests to improve something or even just raising an issue um saying hey wouldn't it be cool if um so you just get that kind of level of feedback from people because it's kind of nicer for people to work with um you just get much more goodwill um and i think that comes out of like there's a bit more freedom kind of involved in it have you found that you're also getting motivation from the activity that you see coming from the outside like are other people's energy kind of giving you energy as well in in building this in the open Yeah, it's really cool. Like you we get um because we've tried to do it like the whole way through. Like we've just kind of like completely lent into it. So that's kind of why we've got a transparent like handbook so you can see our expenses policy or how we hire people or whatever is all detailed. Um and so we're seeing like a lot of other open source um people who are running open source projects that they're wondering like hey, can I do this as like a full-time thing or maybe I'm like a start like very early stage startup and I'm trying to grow So yeah, we're starting to get like quite a lot of people reaching out who are trying to like get cool projects out there. Um so we just think it's a really nice way to um yeah, that side of it's just really fun trying to help other people like get more cool tech into the world. Um yeah. that people can modify. So yeah, it'd be kind of nice to that side of it is like particularly motivating I think at the moment. 
Yeah. For those who want to start their own open source centric company, where would you recommend they start their journey? So I think um, I think the first thing is you need to have um, some sort of pain point yourself is going to make your life a lot easier. Um, so you need to have some, I think if you just try and do it for its own sake and you don't actually know what the project's going to be, or at least you need to have like a couple of random ideas that you're willing to really heavily test. Um, <laughs> if there are pain points you felt, at least you've like got over the first hurdle of finding one user that would use it. Like it needs to be something you would use. Um, once you can work out what that might be, we just used to keep a big, like we had a doc, a Google doc. Um, and every time we got annoyed as we we're writing software or building a company, we'd write down a little pain point. So we had like a couple of pages of ideas. Once you've like got one that you actually feel excited about solving, like that's I think is key. If you're not excited, this is one of the mistakes you made with our other idea. We just we weren't excited enough about it, and you're going to yeah. end up doing this for a really long time, and you're going to be up at like midnight writing code to like solve this problem. So it needs to be something you really get, like you think is cool, um, and it can be really small to start off with. Um, once that's happened, um, I think it's in a case of you need a rough plan for how you're not going to run out of money. Um, you may find that, like, you know, you might, like, if you've got a full-time job, like, you can do stuff in the evenings, make sure that you're allowed to do that with your employer so the work doesn't belong to someone else. Um, If you save some money, like, give it six months, like, especially if you're in in an engineering role, there are tons of jobs available. So, like, if you want to, like, spend six months, just, like, set time periods, try and get this thing off the ground, like, you'll probably manage to get another job um, afterwards if something goes wrong. And like the upside of that is um, you can end up working full-time in open source, which is really fun and could be really great for your career. The alternative is like if you move jobs, you might end up finding a better job anyway. So, uh, you know, it just felt irrational sometimes to not just try it um, and just like limit your exposure. Like I created like a personal budget. I knew like how long I had to get stuff done and it just worked really hard. I think the other thing is finding a co-founder is like very important. Um, yeah. You can build something like kind of cool by yourself, but I think you could like lose your mind in the early stages when you don't have any users um, and you start questioning what you're doing. So I think two of us has really been very helpful. Like when we're fundraising, um, Tim, uh, basically I exclusively fundraised and Tim did literally everything else. So handling the entire community, all the pull requests, all of the engineering and development. Um, and two of us managed to get that done. I think otherwise I'd have got disheartened in fundraising, perhaps if I was trying to do like all of this other stuff at the same time. Um, yeah. And you kind of want to, you know, if there's two of you, you've both committed to it. So you kind of have to not let the other person down sometimes. So, yeah. yeah. And then the, on the funding side, you need, you know, you're going to need some level of traction. If you build something good, like, and you put it on like Hacker News or whatever, just see if anyone cares and do that sooner rather than later, like before you feel like you're actually ready, because you're better off spending four weeks building the wrong thing than spending six months building the wrong thing. Um, we gave ourselves precisely four weeks um, to go from nothing to, putting it on there um and that gave us all the growth we needed to then do the fundraise so you know just give yourself a window um but don't <laughs> don't try and get to perfection like it can be really rough it just has to have like a readme some level of documentation and it needs to sort of solve your problem and not be hideously buggy um but there's enough <laughs> yeah. goodwill that you'll probably get there so yeah that's kind of you probably need about four you know something some kind yeah. of like small time period to launch like launch soon and i think it's probably really key Mm. Very good. Well, just one more question then. Um, what app out there, like a, a closed <clears throat> app, could you see uh, or would you really like to see an open source alternative for? 
Good question. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I think there's like a few of them. I think the, the community one is one I want personally. I'm not convinced you could build like a very big company around the thing we've already talked about. That's something I've just like repeatedly yeah. wanted. Um, I really wanted like something that you could, um, that would be like Google Docs, but would let you work with Markdown um, and would be open source and really easy to set up and use. Uh, it's another like, it kind of bugs me that we have some stuff in Google's Docs still. And I'm like, I wish I could put this into um, like our issues or into, you know, Markdown files, or whatever in a repo. But I like the collaborate. I sometimes like the inline collaboration. So some like cool way of doing that. I think there might be something there. But I don't know really at this stage. <laughs> My advice would be like, look at the SaaS stuff that you're using as a developer um, and think through like, hey, how could this be? Could I think of a way of improving this functionality wise? And would open source like make it nicer from a privacy perspective, for example? Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much, James. This has been great. And uh, I wish you uh, the best of luck onwards uh, with the company. I'm sure you have uh, quite the journey still uh, ahead of you. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, thanks we'll, so much for having me. Yeah, it was my pleasure. All right. Cool. Take it uh, easy. We'll be in touch.